Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with three excellent guests. And this podcast is going to be all about the UK Biobank Whole Genome Sequencing Project. If you haven't come across it, it is a massive collaborative effort between the UK Biobank, as well as a consortium of industry partners, Amgen, AstraZeneca, GlaxoSmithKline, and Johnson & Johnson, alongside Welcome, which is a global charitable foundation based in London that funds a, a very wide array of biomedical research programs, as well as UK research and innovation. And really, the aim of the program is to sequence the complete genetic code of all 500,000 UK Biobank participants. And this sequencing is being carried out by Decode Genetics, as well as the Wellcome Sanger Institute. If you haven't heard about the UK Biobank, which I think is, is pretty unlikely, but if you want to hear the full background and backstory, we did have Professor Sir Rory Collins, the CEO of the UK Biobank, on episode 40. So I, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. I'm really excited today to have three guests. They're Mark Effingham, the Deputy CEO of the UK Biobank, Dr. Kari Stephenson, the CEO of Decode Genetics, and Professor Marilyn Ritchie from the University of Pennsylvania, where she's a professor in the Department of Genetics and the Director for the Center for Translational Bioinformatics and the Associate Director for Bio bioinformatics in the Institute for Biomedical Informatics, Maryland. You win having most titles and things going on. So just to start off, I'm going to ask all three of our guests to give a quick overview of their career and a little bit about themselves to set the scene in context. So Mark, it'd be really great to start with you. Uh, if you could give a quick overview of your career and what brought you to the UK Biobank uh, where you are today. Okay, thanks, Patrick. Really good to join today. So Mark, I think I'm, I'm deputy CEO for UK Biobank. I've been with Biobank for the past six years. So I'm actually a, a physicist by, by training. I started off life as a nuclear physicist before moving into working in IT. I spent 20 years working in industry for IBM, uh, predominantly in healthcare and life sciences. Uh, I joined Biobank six years ago. It's chief information officer, which was a new role at the time. I was recognizing that Biobank was moving from uh, a period where it was very process-oriented about how you recruit half a million participants at scale, collect biological samples that go into storage for future assays. I recognise it was becoming more of a, an information problem about how you collect, curate uh, and make available these very large scale data sets at scale to the international research community. So I started off in that role, setting that direction and then have progressed into more operational roles into the deputy CEO uh, position. Uh, we've been working very closely both as part of this project to undertake whole genome sequencing of half million participants, but also provide the platforms through which these data will be available to researchers worldwide. Great. Thank you, Mark. And we're going to come back to uh, to that data sharing paradigm and the technology behind it uh, definitely later on in the podcast. Marilyn, I'd, I'd love if you could go next um, and give us a quick overview of your background. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so I am a, a biologist by training. Uh, I started in biology and then in graduate school got into biomedical informatics and statistical and computational human genetics. I have spent most of my career in academia kind of going through the ranks. I spent a very short period of time in a health system and I've been at the University of Pennsylvania for a little over four years. Um, throughout my career, I have been involved with biobanks. So I started as an assistant professor at Vanderbilt University and I was there when they started started their biobank. Um, I worked closely with Geisinger with their biobank. And then at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm one of the co-directors of the Penn Medicine Biobank. Um, and one additional uh, thing that, that changed actually just in the last two months is that I am no longer the associate director for bioinformatics in 
the Institute, I've become the director of the Institute for Biomedical Informatics. So I, I just kind of took on that promotion very recently. Excellent. Congratulations. And uh, looking forward to revisiting what you all do and a little bit more about uh, your work in the UK Biobank a little later on. Kari, you're the CEO and, and I believe founder of Decode, and you've been a pioneer in population genetics for much of your career. I did my PhD looking at de novo mutations in rare disease and read pretty much everything that uh, you and your team put out around the topic. Um, so it would be great if you could introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. I am a medical doctor. I trained in neurology and neuropathology at the University of Chicago. I was on the faculty there for several years, was on the faculty at Harvard Medical School for several years. And then about 26 years ago, I founded Decode Genetics in Iceland. And we, in many ways, were the first ones to, to start a population biobank that uh, using sort of this population approach to human genetics. And we have been focusing particularly on common diseases in man, and we have, have sort of been looking at it from the point of view of human diversity in general. Currently, we are very heavy users of the UK Biobank, which sort of uh, has helped uh, to complement what we have with data from Iceland and the rest of Scandinavia. Wonderful. Thank you, Kari. And, and I'd love to actually just jump into it with you and referencing a, a talk that you gave not too long ago at the UK Biobank conference called um, you know, what, why, why Sequence uh, of the UK Biobank? What will we learn from whole genome sequencing um, this many people? I'd love if we could start there. What have we learned to date with the 150,000 samples that have already been sequenced? Maybe the number is even, even higher at this point. And, and what can we hope to learn when the whole uh, program is completed? Uh, this is a this is a fairly big question because uh, basically when when you sequence this large number of people you end up having a reasonably broad view of the beginning of human diversity. Unfortunately, the UK Biobank is mostly not solely but mostly people of European descent, and uh, we need indeed substantially more sequences from people of African descent and, and other ethnic origins. But we are already learning an awful lot from, from the UK Biobank. And it's not just that it is a collection of incredible amounts of, of data on human diversity. It has also been generously made available to the rest of the world in a manner that we have never seen before. So basically, the UK Biobank is probably the biggest gift ever given to the field of biomedical research. And, and uh, basically, in the group that I, I interact with, sort of on world scale, everyone is using the UK Biobank to test out hypotheses that are generated by other data that people have, have available to them. And, and there are all kinds of things that are coming out to this. For example, we, we have been uh, amazed, sort of when we begin to look at the, uh, sequen the, the intergenic sequences, how large part of the genome that is under selection is actually outside of the coding sequences. And, and, uh, and therefore, it's absolutely clear that there are incredibly functionally important regions outside of the coding sequences, outside of the classic regulatory sequences that we have yet to begin to understand fully. So what, what the UK Biobank sequencing is 500,000 genomes that have now been sequenced, what they have already started to teach us I think extraordinarily small compared to everything we will learn from the sequences once we begin to use them and once the rest of the world begins to use them in context of everything else we know about man. 
Mark, Kari referenced this open model of data sharing. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. It's been part of the cultural DNA of the UK Biobank really from the, the very beginning. How did that come about? And, and you know what? how is that manifesting from both that cultural aspect of being very open about data release, but also from the technology side of making that possible while, while still preserving privacy and other uh, you know important promises that you make to the participants? So I think that's a really important point. Uh, so I guess UK Biobank as a a large-scale biomedical kind of database. The whole premise is about how we make these data available to researchers worldwide to undertake all, all kinds of research into uh, diseases that affect us in, in middle and old age. Uh, I think Biobank is quite quite unique for a number of reasons. I think probably primarily it's around accessibility, and this is really about the core of this access policy about how we make the resource available to bona fide researchers all around the world. We engage with everybody on exactly the, the same basis, whether they are UK or international, whether they are uh, industry and, and academic. Uh, and again, the, the policy that's in place is really there to support that and was really part of uh, how we actually engage with participants to join the study in the first, in the first place around the consents in place and how the data would be used. Uh, I think what we've seen, uh, and this was after we made available genotyping and imputation data on all, all half million participants, it really fueled the visibility of the resource worldwide. I think back in 2017, half of all uh, researchers using it were coming from the UK, half from outside, likes of US, uh, Canada, Australia. I think the visibility of the genotyping and mutation data really fueled use by other countries, uh, such that we now have 30,000 researchers in 90 countries all, all around the world being able to work with these data. Uh, I think that visibility uh, led to um, the exome sequencing project, which was a precursor to this, where we were approached by um, Regeneron and GSK to see how they could access biobank samples to undertake complex assays to produce data that they could use themselves, but then would become available for all researchers. I think this is an important part of the access policy that we do allow a short period of exclusive access. So for researchers who are making uh, an investment in the resource, for example, to receive samples and to turn them into reusable data that all researchers can use, they can request a a short period of exclusive use of, of nine months they get to work with those data for that period of time, uh, and then those data become available to all researchers on exactly the same basis. So that really kind of started out uh, around at that point, and has led to subsequent collaborations being formed. It's not limited to industry. We have academic groups who have undertaken uh, sample assays, such as uh, looking at telomere length, uh, where again, they've been able to request a short period of exclusive access. But, but it's a really uh, kind of nice model that has allowed data to be generated that otherwise would have taken many years to come about and really are there for the international research community to, to use. I think it is important for you to understand that uh, people have tried before to make data of this type available. And I think that uh, it has turned out to be rather difficult, for example. Uh, I don't think there is a single resource in the United States that is available in the same manner, in spite of the fact that the NIH has has announced time and again that all data generated with grant money coming from them should be made available to the research community in general. But somehow 
uh, my dear friend on the other side of the Atlantic have not succeeded in the same way as the, as the UK Biobank has. Why do you think that is? What do you think are the differences driving that? I, the difference is probably in, in, lies in the fact that the, the Brits have managed to put together these very large publicly initiated projects like the UK Biobank. And, and, uh, there has, and the people running the Biobank have done it in a rather unselfish manner. It hasn't been governed by the big personalities that have a tendency to want these things for themselves. So uh, I think that through the UK Biobank, through, the, through all kinds of large public processes like this, the, the Brits have basically taken the lead in biomedical research after decades. Marilyn, maybe you can jump in on this. Is this something that you are seeing other other biobanks around the world looking to adopt this model? Or is the UK Biobank still one of the only who are taking this fairly different route? No, I think the, the UK Biobank is certainly at the forefront. And I think they are leading the way and showing everyone else how to do this. Um, I do think, you know, in the US, we're certainly trying to learn from what they've done. I, I can think of a couple of examples. Um, one is the All of Us cohort program, which is a, a research program. Um, it was originally called the Precision Medicine Initiative, and it's now kind of coined the All of Us Research Program. They have a goal of recruiting a million Americans, and currently they have close to half of a million. And I think they're in the process of doing the sequencing for about the first 100,000. I think sometime later in 2022, those data will be made available. But they've done something very similar to the UK Biobank in that the data are available in a researcher workbench, which is very similar to how UK Biobank has been moving with instead of investigators downloading data, the data are available in a cloud-based resource. So I think that the All of Us program has really been looking to how the UK Biobank has done this and is trying to emulate that to make those data similarly available. And as a, a researcher, you know, I've applied for access to the UK Biobank and I've applied for access to All of Us. And I think the processes were very similar. But to Kari's earlier point, it was very hard prior to that, you know, getting data sets, it was a long and onerous process. And, you know, you'd get piecemeal data sets that you'd have to try to put together locally. And that was very complicated. Um, I think some of the other institutes at the NIH in the US are building cloud-based platforms. Um, the NHGRI, which is the Human Genome Research Institute, they have a, a program called Anvil. Um, NHLBI has one called Biodata Catalyst, and I think there's one with the National Cancer Institute as well. They're all moving toward that, and I think they're looking to see how UK Biobank did it and trying to learn from from them. Yeah, that's right. It, 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 it is interesting when you begin to think about it, is that there is a tendency to move with data like this into a sort of a, onto a cloud-based service. So basically, the access to the data becomes limited to using them on specific platforms. And that, I think, is going to diminish our ability to make discoveries with this data because you have to be able to take this data and work with them in the environment that you are familiar with, the environment you have put together, and have the possibility of using them unfiltered in connection with all kinds of other data. So I think that the 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 development towards having the access confined to specific work platforms is is not a good development. 
Mark, I'd be really interested in, in your thoughts on that because I know you've got to balance making sure bona fide researchers have access to the data, but also Kari makes a, a, an important point, which is it's very expensive in the broadest sense, not in a money sense, but time complexity to migrate all of your tools into some new system. How did you all think about that that trade off, and, and what are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's a really good point. I, I, it is a balance, and kind of, Kari and I have spoken about this uh, offline. I, I think it's absolutely right that. Biobank has been so successful because of the way it's allowed researchers to be able to download and use these data in their own environments, using their own tools, driving innovation, to drive new insights. Uh, and, I, and I think it is, I mean, we, we see the value in, in the Biobank resource is really there when it's being used to drive new scientific discoveries. I think it is balanced around uh, practical dimensions of there are a lot of research groups out there who simply don't have the resources in place today to be able to work with these very large scale data sets. Uh, and certainly one of the areas we're looking at how we improve engagement is particularly researchers in kind of lower and middle-income countries who really aren't using the resource today. And, and things like a, a platform does provide facility to hold the data, but also put in place the, the computational resources for, for researchers to use. But it is a really careful balance because we need to create environments that people want to use and doesn't stifle the innovation that they have with, within their own environments. I think we're taking steps towards that. Certainly the investments we've been making in, in our platform, it's very genomics focused right now. It, it does a number of things and things well, but it needs further development over the coming period, uh, particularly to appeal to a broad church of researchers from geneticists to imaging analysis through to just normal statistical kind of analyses. So uh, I agree with Carrie. Uh, we, we need to find a way of retaining what really worked with Biobank in terms of that principles around openness and access, uh, but also recognizing that technology paradigms are moving forward. There is increasing kind of focus on information governance about how these data sets are available. I, I think Biobank has got it right so far, but again, it's keeping our eyes open about how we maintain that in the future. Mark, it breaks my heart to have to disagree with you, but I have to do it in this instance. Yes, it is true. There are a lot of, of scientists from, from low-income com- countries who cannot put together their own platforms to do work on, on the data. And, and I think it's very important to provide them with a platform. But that should not necessarily mean that you should take a modest opportunity of being creative and the way in which they put together tools and platforms, etc. And I think that you will diminish dramatically the impact that the biobank is going to have if you're going to prevent people from downloading data and use them in their own environment. And I think it would be a grave mistake on the behalf of this spectacular enterprise that the UK biobank is. So it sounds like advocating for for not an either or, but really having having yes. the option of both routes, because I think you both make very good points there. Yeah, Marilyn, please. Um, what, what do you have thoughts on? One of the other challenges that I think we will face at I think conversations are ongoing now is that because some of the data sets are available only in a certain cloud workbench, you know, a lot of us want to be able to bring those data sets together and to do replications and, you know, look to see similarities and differences. And so I know you know, I'm on the advisory panel for the All of Us Initiative and on the International Scientific Advisory Board for the UK Biobank. And that's an ongoing conversation. You know, these are two data sets that it would make a lot of sense to bring together to make discoveries, but they live in different clouds. And so 
how do we figure out a way that researchers can use both? And there's some preliminary pilot work that's ongoing, but I think that's something we're going to have to figure out because the way that we're really going to make discovery is by bringing all of these large data sets together. Any one alone won't have enough world diversity to be able to answer all of the questions that we want to answer. We're going to have to bring together the different data sets. Maybe you could talk, Marilyn, a little bit about your research and and what you do, because I understand you're bringing together not just large-scale genomic data sets, but other other kinds of omics and other data that, that Mark and, uh, and Kari referenced previously. UK Biobank is quite unique in having not just a large number of people, not just a high depth of sequencing, but also a great diversity of data. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you're using the the data and, and what your groups work on. Sure. So there's a couple of different kind of axes of research. So one is in the space of really thinking about the phenotypic diversity of disease. So in a lot of our research, we tend to label people, you know, with a disease and without. And we'll pick on maybe type 2 diabetes as an example. You know, you'll create a case control study of people with diabetes, people who are healthy controls and run your associations or your exome analysis or your genome analysis. What we're trying to do is use these large data sets of phenotypic data and clinical data to determine are there kind of subtypes of disease? Can we use machine learning methods to identify that there are actually different subgroups who clinically actually have a different manifestation that also means they probably will have a different disease trajectory, different medications or treatment paradigms would work for them. And then our hypothesis is that genetically, perhaps the disease is actually different. So the underlying genetic mechanisms that lead to these different subtypes might be different. And that could be part of the challenge that we have faced in identifying the genes for many of these common complex diseases. We've lumped kind of heterogeneous phenotypes together. So one strategy is kind of on the phenotype side, could we find subgroups? And to do that well, we do need very large data sets. Because if you imagine, you know, half a million people is a lot, but if you have five different subgroups of disease, like now you're looking at, you know, much smaller sample sizes. And then the other side is on the the genetic and genomic side, how do we put the data together in more sophisticated ways beyond looking at one variant or one gene at a time? You know, these diseases are complex, so it might be that it's variation, you know, maybe there are some single nucleotide polymorphisms or some pathogenic mutations that are important in some of the individuals. Perhaps there are methylation changes or gene expression changes that are important. Perhaps it's something that doesn't happen until it's at the protein level. And so trying to think about ways to bring together multi-omics data sets is something else that we're thinking a lot about. You know, really, we know that diseases are complex in their etiology. And so really trying to think about how can we use kind of machine learning and other methods to try to address that. I'd, I'd actually really love to pick up on this topic because I, so I, I was speaking to Peter Donnelly uh, from Oxford Genomics PLC a few weeks ago, and and we talked about how there are some very simple drug targets, simple, maybe simple is not the right word, but some very straightforward monogenic drug targets like PCSK9. We talk about them all the time. Um, but in some ways, there, there are actually surprisingly few of these simple examples. PCSK9, maybe LARC2, maybe APOE4, CARI, and I, there's probably a few in the neurology space. But in some ways, it's been 20-odd years of sequencing, and we have relatively few simple stories that we can tell from a drug discovery perspective. And and I guess the question is, are, are, are do we actually need to be embracing the complexity of this a little bit more and thinking about how do... What stories do multi-omic data sets or, or polygenic scores tell? And, and maybe you all disagree with me on that a little bit, that actually we, we're just still not at the scale yet. And there are many hidden 
single single genetic drug targets to look at. But I'm really curious to get your thoughts on that or whether um, you know, whether that story that we often tell about PCSK9 is actually a case for the exception. Uh, it's actually an exception that proves the rule uh, or whether there are many more of those to be found. I don't think that we should be expecting a lot of, of the studies like the PCSK9 study. It is a, it's a one spectacular example of a spectacular success in the, in the search for drug target. But one of the things that I, I believe it is, is incredibly important to recognize what it is that we are striving for. We are mainly studying human diversity. We are trying to figure out how, how we can put the diseases in the context of what we understand about human diversity in general. And if we skip cancers, most of the diseases are caused by perturbation in biochemical pathways, biochemical pathways that are either upregulated or downregulated. And even though the genetics of the disease is fairly complex, many genes come through the upregulation or downregulation of a biochemical pathway, you may not need but one target, one protein in this, in this pathway. And, and once you begin to look at human disease in the, in the context of human diversity, it is absolutely clear that you cannot let the diversity in the sequence suffice. Because the diversity is caused by this interaction of, of the sequence diversity with the environment. And the older the individual is, the more opportunity has the environment had to influence this diversity. And one of the things we have been doing of late is to look at both the polygenic risk score for diseases and polyproteomic risk score for diseases. And it's interesting that the old, you know, that that the proteomic risk score, if you take, for example, cardiovascular disease, and you just take a population in, in Iceland, people of average age of 57, that uh, proteomic risk score that consists of level of 1 to 200 proteins captures several orders of magnitude greater risk than the polygenic risk score. And what is more, the polygenic risk score and the proteomic risk score are uncorrelated, or the correlation is very, very little. And what does that mean? It means that after the pathogenesis begins, after atherosclerosis starts, there is a process that takes over that is fairly independent of the genetics. If you would, however, compare polygenic risk scores and proteomic risk score in a 35-year-old, first of all, the polygenic risk score captures more of the risk, and what is more, the proteomic risk score and the polygenic risk score are completely correlated because the proteomic risk score is just a surrogate for the polygenic risk score. But once the pathogenesis begins, then the proteome or the proteomic risk scores takes over and, and, and it's probably not a true risk score, it's probably just a documentation of early steps in the pathogenesis of the disease. So I think that we are now into an era when, yes, it's incredibly important to have the sequence of all of these genomes, but we have to begin to look at them in the context of not just clinical phenotypes, but things like proteomics and transcriptomics and metabolomics and begin to bridge this gap between the genome and the clinical phenotype. And in the, bridging that gap, you, you can't begin to capture the environmental influences because, for example, the, the proteins are the business molecules in our body. The proteins make everything else. And it is inconceivable that the environment can have much impact on your biology unless it is reflected in the proton. So we have, a, we have an enormous amount of, of space to explore, new territories to explore. 
in the context of all these data on, on diversity in sequence and diversity in clinical phenotypes, etc. Marilyn, please, you're nodding your head vigorously. I think you agree or disagree. I'd love to hear. <laughs> I agree completely. And I, I want to build on one of the, the things that Kari said about the biochemical pathways. So as I said at the beginning, I was a biologist first. So I think about a lot of these data analyses with my biology hat on. And if we think back to some of the early work in Mendelian disease, even, and thinking about inborn errors of metabolism. You know, these are pathways that, yes, a single mutation and a single gene causes disease. But within that pathway, in different individuals, it's different mutations and even different genes. But therapeutically, it's often the same therapeutic that would treat patients with a mutation in any one of those genes, or yeah, any one of those genes. So the way that I've been thinking a lot about this is from a drug discovery perspective, we're not necessarily looking for the PCSK9 and the target for only that protein, but instead, you know, what are the biological pathways that we should think through and put the data together in ways that there are probably therapeutics to be created that would target any of the variants from that particular pathway and would treat patients no matter what the variation is within that pathway. So I think really starting to think about the biology that mechanistically might underlie some of these diseases. And instead of, will we not have other PCSK9 examples? I I don't think we can say that. There probably are some more, but my prediction would be more often we're going to find sets of genes that in different people, it might be a single mutation in a single gene, but in a population of individuals, it's going to be a set of genes that function together in biological pathways. And, and actually, don't forget the fact that the PCSK9 story is just an extension of the story of the LDL receptor. That's so, right. So, so it is, it isn't a, a single gene and a single protein. It just falls into the in sort of a Brown and Goldstein old story. So I, I think it is. We, we're going to see a lot of, of, of things like that. And and what is more, we we will begin to see a lot, lot more interactions uh, that have been, you know, escaping us so far because it is inconceivable that the genome can function to put together people without having significant interactions between these variants in the genome. We have been clumsy in finding, you know, unlucky we have not been finding them, but we will find them in the, in the near future. Mark, the UK Biobank is very, very clearly set up for this future. You all have been investing for the last couple of years in proteomics, transcriptomics, uh, other kinds of uh, flavors of omics. How, how do you think about the vast array of possibilities you all have? You could recruit more participants, you could sequence more deeply, you could sequence new assays. How do you think about that space in, in, in with finite resources? So uh, I think Carrie's absolutely right in terms of, I think we're right at the start of this and there's huge areas of exploration ahead. I think Biobank is probably now the most genetically characterized resource with genotype, exome, and whole genome sequencing data uh, already available. There are already projects in flight to add metabolomic data. So we're working with a group in Nightingale who are undertaking a set of measures for uh, metabolomic measures using MR-based assay, and that work is underway. There's an initial project doing the first 50,000 measures for a proteomics using the O-Link panel. And again, I think significant interest about how we extend that across all half million participants in the months and years ahead. And I think that really is just the, the start. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in looking at how we go beyond panel assays and start looking at mass spectrometry 
for both metabolomics and proteomics. We have samples on half million participants. We've used about 8% of those samples for all the assays that have done to date. So there really is considerable material left. And and we have that not just from baseline, but for a growing proportion of participants. We have samples from longitudinal time points where participants have come back for either repeat assessments or as part of our imaging project. So I don't think we're as motivated by extending the range of participants by recruiting more. I I think we see most value coming from getting additional time point samples and looking at change over time and how that can be associated with drivers of disease. I have a suggestion, Mark. You see, I, I wholeheartedly agree with this and, and um, I, am basic, I, I want to emphasize that I'm in awe, you know, when it comes to generosity with which you guys have made this resource available to the rest of us. I'm even feeling willing to forgive the Brits for invading the Icelandic fishing limits because of, of the UK biobank. But I think that in addition to what you're proposing to do, I think it would make a lot of sense to look at the children of the participants in the biobank because if there is one flaw in the biobank, is it is the lack of close relationships that make, for example, the discovery of rare variants easier, makes it easier to put the rare variants in context. And so I think it, that is one of the things that I would think seriously about that. I, I think this is one of the things that Biobank itself doesn't do any research. We, we really see ourselves there as give us the challenge and let us go and figure out how to make it happen. I think there has been interest on can we go to children and grandchildren. And indeed, we did do that last year as part of uh, a serology project. And we saw huge interest in participation from children and grandchildren for that. So it's certainly one of the ideas. I think if we can find funding, there may be interest in, in doing that. So I, I say these aren't mutually exclusive. I think the additional time point for the existing participants to really extend the range of information that we have but potentially also children and grandchildren will be a, a fabulous addition if we can get funding to do that i couldn't agree more i think i was going to ask a similar question and maybe kari we're betraying our mutual interest in de novo mutations and other things that you can find from family members but i i, I would second that that having generation two three and beyond would be a really very powerful addition yeah, for, for example patrick if you think about it that a 10 percent of children one out of 10 children born has a de novo loss of function mutation in a gene, all right? And that means that one out of 20 children born is born with a de novo loss of function mutation in a gene that is expressed in the brain. So, so uh, the de novo mutation are very, very significant contributors to public health in our society. The other benefit to getting the children and the grandchildren is that linkage between genetics and the environment. So knowing about shared environments and being able to link all of those environmental risk factors as well as social determinants of health, you know, in within families to then ask questions about the relationship between the genome and those environmental risks. That, so yeah, I guess I would third that that would be a great addition to the biobank. We'll help you write the grant, Mark. You just you just tell us when. <laughs> Don't know what it will cost. I'm sure it's a lot of money, but. Once you begin to think about environment, shared and non-shared environment, that directs the focus very, very quickly towards the brain. Because the brain is the control instrument. It is the thing that directs us into environment and away from environments. And also the brain is the last frontier of biology. We haven't the faintest idea how the brain works. 
We don't know how the brain generates a thought. We don't know how the brain, brain generates emotion. And it is pathetic because we as a species are, are basically defined or by our, our thoughts and emotions. And we as individuals of the species are defined by the same things. So one of the things you could do with the UK Biobank is to increase the, the cognitive function, you know, testing and, and stuff like that, which we are missing, sorely missing. I don't know if you want any more requests, Mark, or, <laughs> or suggestions, but we're running out of time here. I'd, I'd love to just finish off with, with a really high-level question, and I'll give you all some time to think about it. But from my perspective, 2000 to 2010 was, was really about technology and methodology improvements. How can we get cost of testing down, and how can we figure out not to do candidate gene studies and, and do GWAS a little bit more effectively? 2010 to 2020 was really the, the age of the genome-wide association study, increasing scale, Finding findings of hits in the hundreds and, and thousands, and I really want to ask you all: what is what is twenty twenty to twenty thirty? When we look back in eight years from now, what will we say that the twenty twenty to twenty thirty decade in genomics was all about? I think that the most important, if I take the next five years, I think the most important contribution will come from bridging this gap between the genome and the clinical phenotype by gathering enormous amounts of data on proteomics, on, on uh, transcriptomics and metabolomics. That is, that is sort of the simplest way of generating a new avalanche of discoveries. But I hope we will also make some fundamental discoveries about things that we are missing from our understanding of human genetics. Because even in spite of all of these sequencing, the variants we have discovered are accounting for too little or far too little part of the, uh, the diversity or the variance in, in risk, etc. So but that, those are my, I, I have an incredibly bad track record of predicting the future. <laughs> so be careful not to listen to me when I begin to do so. Marilyn, Mark, what about you? What are your thoughts? I, I'd second those in terms of, I think, two areas around the kind of multimodal analyses, bringing together these different data sets, or also imaging data. We've got imaging data on what will be 100,000 people in the next few years to really give insights into kind of brain, heart, etc. I think federation is the second area to a point I think Marilyn picked up on earlier around how the research community can really take advantage of these large-scale resources around the world, Biobank, all of us, elsewhere, and really start to be able to undertake analyses across these in a, in a kind of easy and accessible way. Uh, but I think a lot of hard work, but opportunity ahead in that regard. Yeah, I agree with what both of them have said. I mean, I think the the next 10 years is really the era for the data science and informatics to kind of shine. You know, we've we've created extremely large data sets. We've done lots of one variant, one gene at a time statistics and there's so much more to be done. We have barely hit the tip of the iceberg, I think in terms of what is discoverable in these data sets. So I think we're going to see, um, as Kari said earlier, it, it's inconceivable that it's not interactions between genes, between genes and environment, and these different kind of multi-omics data. And I think all of these folks that have been working in these sophisticated machine learning and statistical methodologies for the last two decades, but the data sets were just too small and too simple to actually ask the questions. I think now that we have these data sets, we're finally going to start to tease apart some of this complexity and embrace it and, and model it. 
Is it possible that there aren't enough humans on Earth to answer some of these questions? Because at some point, we're going to sequence all 6 billion people and image all 6 billion and omics all 6 billion. Is, is there an upper limit? And, and do we need to think about other strategies? Listen to me. What we are mining, when we are mining data on human diversity, we are mining data on an experiment that has been going on for 250,000 years. So we, there is actually enormous amount of data behind this. And, and I think that rather than blaming lack of material, if we cannot do this, we should blame our own stupidity and nothing else. This is our task to do and we can do it. I love that. Yeah, I agree. I think we need to be smarter with our approach rather than work harder to make the sample size as big as possible. We just work smarter, not harder. We need to work very, very hard. And uh, let's put it this way, you know, there are many years since I accepted the fact I have just to live with the limits that I was born with, but I can always work a little bit more, <laughs> and I'm going to do that. Maybe we need to organize a debate, because I know that there is a there is a group of people who believe that saturation, genome editing, and cellular models are the answer, because if we take it, I, I, I'm not a BRCA1, BRCA2 expert, but there's a, such a complexity of possible missense variants that to see all those in in sequencing humans it may take a long time to get there i don't think we should be nasty to these people we should show them sympathy and be nice to them <laughs> <laughs> that's right we'll invite them in and show them the way well thank you all I, I really appreciate you taking the time it was a great conversation we hashed out some some issues over icelandic fisheries and uh, we've made some suggestions to mark at the uk biobank team so thank you all very much for taking the time today thank you Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, the best thing you can do is share with a friend, let them know you liked it, and you can also leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.